Well, good morning again. Uh, my name is Brenton Wade, if we have not met, and I'm one of the pastors here at Vero Bible Fellowship. I'm not a regular teaching pastor. Uh, he was away for a wedding this weekend that he was uh, conducting. And um, it really is my privilege and joy to get to preach this morning. I've been looking forward to this all week. And before we begin, I want to just take a moment to, to recognize that we have um, the Teen Challenge Boys and several of the parents with us here today. And uh, we're, yes, we're very thankful to have them here with us. It's always wonderful when they are here visiting. We love these Sundays. We always talk about them after as um, being such a joy. So if you have a copy of God's Word, you can grab it and turn to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, and we are going to begin with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, Father God, what a joy to be together. What a joy to sing your praises. What a joy to celebrate our children and make a commitment together. And now what a joy to open up your word. I pray, God, that you'd give us eyes to see the truth of your word. That you'd give us hearts that are receptive to it. That you'd help me to be faithful to this scripture. And that all of it would cause us as a church family to live our lives for your glory. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Do you ever think about or dream about the impact that you have on others? Have you ever thought about the impact you've had on others up to this point in your life? Or think about the impact that you could have in the future? A few years ago, I was, uh, went on a camping trip with several guys, and one night we made a fire and we were all sitting around the fire talking. And I had this one friend who, maybe you have this person in your life, it's like the friend that is always super intentional and deep all the time. Like, you're never talking with this friend about like mowing the grass or the latest movie that came out. It's always like, what was the most meaningful experience you've had in your life lately? I love these friends. So I have one of those friends and he uh, was like, looked at me and he said, Let's ask some questions. Brenton, what do you want your legacy to be? <laughs> I was like, oh, goodness. I never really thought about it before. And such a, such a big question. But I think that's a good question for us to ask during our lives. I think we all have the desire to live a life of impact. I don't think anyone says... Yeah, I'd just love to have a meaningless, purposeless life where everything I do amounts to nothing. That'd be great. I'd love to waste my life. Yeah, sign me up. No, I think we have this good and right desire to have a meaningful life. I think that desire can be good or can be bad based on really one question. Do I desire to have impact for my glory or do I desire to have impact for the glory of God. You see, I think Paul was a man who desired to live his life of purpose and meaning and impact for God's glory. 
and God used him in powerful ways. This isn't our scripture today, but Acts chapter 20, just the next chapter over, he's speaking to the elders at the church of Ephesus, and he says this, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul saw his life not as his own, but as the Lord's, that he would use it for him, that he would spend it for him. And that's what I want to think about today. Today we are looking at Acts chapter 19. We're going to be starting in verse 21. And we're going to look and think about the impact of the gospel and the kind of impact that our lives can have. And if you're taking notes, we're going to pull three lessons from this text about living an impactful life for the glory of God. Living a purposeful life for the glory of God. At this point in the book of Acts, we are on Paul's third missionary journey. The book of Acts is all about the expansion of the gospel. The outline of the book starts about the gospel in Jerusalem. It then moves to the gospel going to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And Paul is the main missionary that is taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And he has three notable missionary journeys in the book of Acts. The first one is, uh, it's very easy to see. Him and Barnabas leave together from Antioch and they have a route of different places that they go. The second one, Paul and Silas leave and they head off for the second missionary journey. But the third one I think is easy to miss. It's actually in chapter 18, the last chapter, verses 18 through 23. Paul actually comes to Ephesus on the second journey, but he only stays for a little bit. And it says then he left, verse 22, he landed at Caesarea, which is near Jerusalem, and then he went up to, or he went down to Antioch. And from there he leaves on his third journey. So we're now on the third journey. He comes to Ephesus in chapter 19. And he's actually going to spend almost three years in Ephesus at this point. And we've already seen in chapter 19 how Paul came and he addressed some disciples that hadn't understood fully about the Holy Spirit. Then we learned last week about these Jewish exorcists who tried to cast out a demon by using Jesus' name in almost an incantation. And uh, basically they get beat And they run out of the house naked. Um, So uh, that didn't go well for them. (laughs) But we learn that the name of Jesus is extolled and praised um, in Ephesus. And now we come to verse 21. And this is our text today. So let's look at it together. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying... After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So Paul, under the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit, comes up with a plan. He's going to go to Macedonia and Achaia, which is where the churches of Philippi and Corinth are. He's been there before, but he's going to go back. And then he's going to go to Jerusalem, where he's going to take an offering to the church in Jerusalem. And then he has his eyes set on Rome. 
Rome would be the furthest that the gospel has gone at this point. And as the goal is to bring it to the ends of the earth, Paul has his gaze set on Rome. And actually, after chapter 20, the whole rest of the book of Acts is about Paul's journey to Rome. So he comes up with this plan, verse 22, and having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. We're not sure why he stayed. Maybe he felt like he needed to teach a little bit longer. Maybe he just wanted to send Timothy and Erastus ahead to prepare the way. But now we read in verse 23, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Now, if we've been following Paul and his journeys in his life, we know that he's not exactly had an easy road. He's not exactly uh, gone without opposition. And so this line kind of makes our stomachs sink, right? Like, oh, Paul, you could have left with Timothy and Erastus. You stayed a little longer, and now a big disturbance arises. The way is what Christians were referred to during that time. So a big disturbance arises concerning the Christians there. Well, what happens? Verse 24. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Okay, so now we have a character, Demetrius. Demetrius works in the silversmith trade, and we don't know all that he makes out of silver, but we do know that his main business, the, the part that he makes the most money off of at least, is creating little shrines of the goddess Artemis. These would have been little idols or possibly a model of the temple that he would have been created. They would have been used at home for worship or they could have been presented at offerings. And we learn that Demetrius has a very profitable business through this. Why? Well, the reason why is that Ephesus was home to the temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The temple of Artemis would have been uh, 220 feet wide, 425 feet long, and it would have had 127 marble columns that would have surrounded it. And in the inner part of the temple was a giant statue of the goddess Artemis. Interestingly, actually, the temple was used as a bank as well. And so not only was their worship kind of tied up into this, but also the money of the city as well. And people from all over the province of Asia would come to Ephesus to worship the goddess Artemis and to see her. So he's not only profitable from the people in Ephesus, but also those traveling in. And Demetrius has a problem. Verse 25, these he gathered together, the other craftsmen, with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia in the world 
worship. Now, do you see what's happening here? Because it's pretty incredible. Paul has faithfully proclaimed the gospel in Ephesus, and it's gone all throughout the province of Asia, and God has used it in such a way to so impact this city that the guys that make idols are going out of business. They're literally losing money because so many people are becoming Christians. I mean, this was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This was the, the, the focal point of this city. All the people there worshipped Artemis, and yet so many people are being saved that these guys who make the idols are going out of business. This is incredible. If, if we actually look back at last week, the text that we looked at, verse uh, 18, after we learned about the exorcism, uh, it said, also many of those who were now believers, so those who had just come to faith in the Lord, confessing and divulging their practices. And it says a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So a piece of silver is likely a Greek drachma, which would have been about a day's, worth a day's labor. So if we kind of put that into our present day, at about $15 an hour, and think about how much 50000 would be, that's, that's about $6 million U.S. dollars. Think about the impact that the gospel has had on this city. Oh, that God would use our church in even a fraction of this way, in Sebastian and in Vero. Oh, that he would use our church to be witnesses for God that we would have an impact on the cities around us. Like, just, just consider, just think about, just dream for a second. What would it look like for our town to be so powerfully impacted by the gospel? It is ultimately God who moves and who works in the lives of people. But he uses our faithfulness and our prayer. And so that's why this is our first point. So uh, three lessons we learn about how to live an impactful life for the glory of God. Number one, pray for gospel impact. Pray for it. Pray for it individually, yourself, but pray for it for us as a church. If we grow complacent in our faith, and we're not even asking God to impact the people around us, should we expect to see God move in our city? Are your prayers filled with this? Do you regularly ask God to save and redeem people? Do you regularly ask God to draw those to himself who seem the farthest away? Or do we only pray for physical healing? Do we only pray for peace and strength getting through trials? Those are wonderful things to pray for. Don't get me wrong. I, we pray for those things all the time as elders. But let's examine our hearts. Are we also praying for God to save people? Are we praying for him to move in the hearts and in the lives of the people around us? I mean, if we think about the original audience of this book, this, 
uh, book of Acts was probably only written about five or ten years after these events took place. Think about that. Think about if we had heard about a, a nearby place, let's say it's like West Palm Beach, like ten years ago, the gospel had such an impact on West Palm that all of a sudden uh, uh, um, a nightclub, a strip club, went out of business. Like, would that not inspire us? Would that not make us think, how can God move in our city? That's what, that's what, we, that, that's what prayer can do. And that's what reading this, this scripture and this, this story can do for us, is inspire us toward that. It, it's to recognize that God is the one who saves. And so we need to pray to him continually and ask him to move and to work in the lives of people. Now, a good question to ask is what kind of impact are we praying for? Or or what does God do in the heart of a person when he saves them? Well, God changes the heart. He changes the heart so that he is loved above all else. If your whole concept of Christianity is that you believe that the God of the Bible is real and you believe this is true and you think if I come to church faithfully, I've checked the boxes I need to check, you've missed it. Christianity, the gospel of Jesus Christ, radically reorients the human heart. It draws us to worship and to love God more than anything else. He gives us a new heart with new affections and new desires. Uh, 2 Corinthians says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And so when God saves somebody, this is what happens. Just consider God's grace here. Maybe you're here today and you're just feeling broken over your sin. Maybe just weighed down by the guilt of your sin. Think about God's grace here. That he would change our hearts when we can. I mean, this is the story of the whole Old Testament. The people are blowing it time and time again. And then a beautiful promise in Ephesians from God. He says, I will give you a new heart. Like the fact that God is the one who does that in us is just an evidence of his grace. The fact that God gives us the power to overcome sin in our life. Like, are you heavy over your sin? There's nothing better to do than to confess it to God and pray and ask him to be able to overcome it. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. You're wondering what all this talk of the gospel is about. Well, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace is this, that you were created by God to worship him. But every single person has sinned against God, has broken his law, and now stands guilty under God's judgment. His just judgment. But the great news of the gospel is this. That God loved you so much that he sent his very own son, Jesus Christ, to come to the earth and to die upon a cross. And in his death, he took on the punishment that we owed. And then he rose from the grave three days later. 
And when he rose, he showed us, hey, this is the son of God. Hey, this sacrifice did work. And so now anyone who would repent of their sins, who would turn away from their sins and turn and trust in Jesus Christ and what he did in his death and resurrection will be forgiven of their sins and will be given eternal life. If that's you today, don't wait. Let this be the day that you turn to Jesus. Let this be the day that you find new life in him. The gospel has such a great impact because it changes the human heart. We could say it this way too. When a person is converted, whatever idol is sitting on the throne of their heart is dethroned and God is worshiped as the one and only God. And so when we think about this idea of idols and shrines and temples, it feels very disconnected from today, does it not? But we live in very different societies. The society back then was highly polytheistic, multiple gods, and it was uh, highly religious. Our society today is highly secular and individualistic. And so sometimes this doesn't compute, but an idol can be anything in our lives that we value and that we worship more than God. Uh, Tim Keller defines an idol this way. I think it's helpful. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, and anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And so while it feels worlds apart, these idols that they're talking about, that we're talking about in this text are present today. First, greed. Demetrius and the silversmiths are worried about their money. We can see greed clearly today in America all over the place. And while that's their main concern, Demetrius is kind of clever here, and he riles them up using some other methods too. First, he speaks to the idol of politics by saying that the temple the great pride of their city could be counted as nothing with what Paul is doing. And, uh, and so he's hitting at their civic and their political pride for this temple and this city. And it's interesting, we're going to see in a second that the crowd is going to cry out about Artemis, but they're not just going to say great is Artemis. They're going to say great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Intentionally, specifically, because it's the pride of their city. And so, again, today, in America, politics is a big idol. And then lastly, the worship of Artemis herself that he refers to, he says, she may even be deposed from her magnificence. And we, we can't, it's hard for us to relate to the idea of, of worshiping a goddess like that. But Artemis was the goddess of fertility. And so her worship was often associated with prostitution and orgies. And so again, today, sex, sexual identity, is a huge idol in America. So we can see these things present today. And maybe even as we talk about them, you feel like, I need to repent to the Lord. I need to give this over, and one of these things, I've made an idol in my life, and I need to turn back to him. But what we're talking about is the power of the gospel. And where God uses the gospel, 
idols are dethroned, worship is redirected, and he is treasured more than anything else. I mean, how incredible that God would invite us to be a part of something that literally changes people, that literally changes their hearts, that he would invite us into that work with him. And so pray, pray for gospel impact. Let's look now at verse 28. What happens after Demetrius brings this complaint? Well, it says, when they heard this, they were enraged. And they were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so the second thing that we can learn from this about living a life of impact for God's glory is number two, be ready for persecution. Be ready for persecution. Have you ever thought about why? Why are Christians persecuted? Why, why does the world persecute Christians? It's actually interesting in the book of Acts. There's tons of persecution of Christians, but really it's all from the Jews. There's only two times that the Gentile world persecutes Christians. First, back in Acts chapter 16, when Paul and Silas cast a demon out of a slave girl, and it says the owners made a lot of money from her fortune-telling. And then here, whenever they disrupt the city so much that the guys making idols are losing money, why are Christians persecuted? Because the gospel threatens to remove their idols. It threatens to remove the things that they hold precious. Christians will be more and more persecuted in America as we hold to our Christian sexual ethic. Because one of the biggest idols in America right now is sexual identity. And the more we stand against that, the more we'll, the world will be, feel threatened. No, you're, you're coming at my idol. You're coming at the thing that I hold precious. And the more we will be persecuted. Honestly, the, the idea of persecution is hard for me, just to be personal. I, I don't like when people dislike me or mad at me, have a problem with me. It, that's hard for me. But it helps me to realize why the persecution is coming. It helps, it helps me when I think about the fact that the gospel is coming near and close and threatening their idols. And it helps me because idol worship is ultimately slavery to sin. It's bondage. It's a life of emptiness. I can think back years ago, seeing people uh, at University of Florida football games just passed out, throw up next to them. I mean, that's somebody who has an idol of alcohol, and it has led them to a life of emptiness. And while that's an extreme example, the idols of success, the idols of achievement and social standing are just as empty. That's an empty life. But a life with God is a life of joy. When the angels come in, uh, in the book of Luke and they pronounce to the shepherds, what do they say? We have great news of, we, we have good news of great joy. And so one of the kindest things we can do with the world is share the gospel. Because it will, live to a li- it will lead to a life of purpose. It will lead them to a life of joy. And that doesn't mean it's not hard to face persecution still. 
but it helps us when we understand why we face that persecution. So the second thing is be ready for persecution. It will only increase. And the Bible is clear that we should expect it. Now, let's look back at verse 29. Read the rest of our narrative here, and we'll finish with our final point. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. Now, this theater in Ephesus was quite large. It could hold over 20,000 people. So this is like, if they're going to the theater, this is likely a very large mob of people. And on the way, they find two of Paul's companions, and they grab them and they drag them in. I mean, imagine the fear these guys must have felt. A crowd that large, angry, shouting. And they know it's because Paul started it, (laughs) and we're Paul's friends. I mean, there's got to be a lot of fear here. Verse 30 But when Paul wished to go in among them, among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Paul. You gotta love the guy. I mean, seriously? This big of an angry riot. You're the reason. I mean, it's your preaching is the reason it started. And you want to run in there to try to save your friends? I mean, you gotta give it to him. Paul is bold. He is bold. And he's got a great heart. But the disciples don't let him. Probably smart. Sometimes we need friends in our life that, you know, can bring us to our senses like this. And in fact, even in verse 31, we see even some of the Asiarchs, um, and, and basically those were officials of the province of Asia. So they were, they were higher up in the government, actually. But they're friends of his, sent to him, and were urging him not to venture into the theater. They were probably looking out for Paul, but they probably knew the riot would get worse if they let Paul go in the theater as well. And so the disciples say, Paul, not a good idea. And now the chaos just gets even more chaotic. Verse 32. Now some cried out one thing, some another. For the assembly was in confusion. And most of them didn't even know why they had come together. I mean, <laughs> this, this is the chaos that mobs and riots have. There are people there who don't even know why they're there. They're just chanting along, yelling along with the rest of the the crowd. And it's total chaos. And then look at this, verse 33. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized he was a Jew, for about two hours, they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the Jews push this guy, Alexander, forward. Poor guy. They say, hey, you, you quiet him down. And so he motions with his hand like he wants to speak to everyone. And then as soon as they see he's a Jew, they start shouting all the louder. Now, he might have been trying to say, hey, the Jews, we're not associated with Paul. Uh, you know, we don't, we don't know exactly what he's trying to say. But as soon as they see he's a Jew, that they know that the Jews are monotheistic, that they believe in one God. And so they know that they don't approve of the worship of Artemis. And so the crowd roars two hours long. Imagine that. Shouting. They're not backing down from the defense of their city. And it's in this climactic moment of our story. I mean, the town's in an uproar. 
Paul's companions are in the midst of it. Paul wants to go in, and, and you know he, with all eagerness, wants to get in there, but his friends are like, no, Paul, not smart. He was literally just about to leave the city, and now he could die. His companions could die. What happens in this moment? I actually think it's kind of anticlimactic. Let's read the last couple of verses. Verse 35. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So the town clerk quiets the crowd. He says, guys, no one is debating that Artemis is great, that Ephesus is great. We have the temple here. He says, these men haven't robbed the temple. They haven't blasphemed Artemis. And so if Demetrius and the other crafts, if they have a complaint, they need to go through uh, the right channels, bring it to court, and see if the actual charge can hold up. And then he dismisses the crowd. <laughs> Not what I would have imagined would have been the outcome with an angry, rioting crowd. And yet sometimes I think life is like this too. Sometimes the things that we fear the most and sometimes seem like they're going to be big and catastrophic end up being not much of anything in the end. But it's interesting, the town clerk, he was kind of the top, um, uh, top government person in Ephesus, and he kind of acted as the liaison or in-between between the Romans um, and the town. And so really here, he's trying to save his own hide. Uh, he's trying to make sure the Romans are not going to be upset with him and with the officials of the city um, that they're having an illegal riot. He says, we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. So we come to the end of this like exciting, scary, somewhat anticlimactic story. And what are we to make of it? Well, first, like we stated before, we see the amazing impact that the gospel can have on a city, on people, on people's lives being changed. Two, we, we understand why the world persecutes Christians, because we threaten their idols. Interestingly, in, in all throughout the book of Acts, the Christians never are breaking the law. Every time the, the Romans come in, the higher authorities come in, they say, we see nothing wrong. Jesus was the same way. The Romans didn't see anything wrong with Jesus before the court of law. The only thing was the Jews were saying he was a blasphemer. And similarly, they, they always end up being exonerated. But we can still understand why the world persecutes us. 
Because though we are not using means that are political or illegal or unethical, which thanks be to God that that's not the case, we are still sharing a message that comes near to what they treasure in their hearts. And so lastly, our third thing here, what are we to learn from this story? I think we're to see the providence of God through it. So number three is find courage in God's providence. Find courage in God's providence. God's providence is his ruling and his reigning over every event and moment in human history. And also his purposeful and intentional provision and care for his people. So it's interesting, right? At the beginning of the story, God guided Paul to set his gaze to Rome. But then this roadblock comes up. And yet, it's not an amazing thing Paul did that quieted the crowd. It's not that he somehow had this amazing rescue plan to get his friends out of there. No. The town clerk trying to save his own hide quiets down the crowd. It's these ordinary means that are used that quiets the crowd and Paul can safely leave the city. And I think we see this all throughout the book of Acts. God is continually providing for and protecting his people. That doesn't mean bad things won't happen. I mean, we learned of Stephen, who was martyred for the faith, who was killed for the faith. But it does mean that God has a plan. It does mean that God is in control. And that it means that we can have confidence that as long as we're on this earth, if we are a, one of his beloved children, as long as he wants us here, he's going to provide and protect for us. He's going to care for us because he's good and he's faithful to his children. Maybe you're here today and you're walking through a really difficult season in your life. Let me just remind you of this beautiful truth that God reigns. Let me just remind you of that because our hearts need that. He's not powerless to your situation. He's not blind or deaf to it. In his infinite wisdom and power, he knows every step of your life. Not only does he know it, he's with you in it, and he loves you. One of the most powerful answers to the question of why does God allow evil in this world? Truly, we don't know the mind of God, and there are good answers to that question that can be found but we don't know the exact mind of God or why he would bring certain trials into our lives or not. But one of the most powerful truths that we can remember in those times is that the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, endured the worst of suffering. That he walked through it himself. He's not unacquainted with suffering. He's well acquainted with it. And so no matter what you're going through, he understands it completely. Jesus was at the mercy of a riot, but it didn't turn out the way it turned out here. He was overthrown and hung and nailed to a cross. But that was his plan, that he could die for the forgiveness of our sins. 
He did that because of his love for us. And so remember that your God knows what you're going through. He himself understands the suffering well. And he cares for you. He loves you. His hand is holding you. His provident, almighty hand. And so I want to end just by reading again the scripture reading at the start. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. I think that this scripture is powerful. It says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. As we walk through persecution, as we walk through suffering, let us trust Almighty God with our souls. Let us commit our souls to Him. He is the creator. He is the author of all of life. And we can trust that he is a faithful God and that he is a good God. So be encouraged in your trial. God has not left you. He's with you and he's in control. Read the book of Acts often. That's a very practical step because in it we see God's provident hand all throughout providing and protecting for his people. Trust him with your soul. He is faithful. So how can we live a life of purpose, meaning, and impact for the glory of God? We can pray for gospel impact. We can be ready for the persecution that is sure to follow. And we can find courage in God's providential hand. Let's pray. God, we thank you. I just want to thank you, Lord, that the Bible is not just a book of doctrine. I do love doctrine. We do love doctrine that is clearly written out in a form of discourse. But I thank you that you've included so much of history in the Bible. That we can see the people of God at different times in history. And see how you used them. And how you provided for them. I pray God that that would bring great encouragement to your people here today. Lord, I pray that if there's someone here who has never put their faith in you, that this would be the day that they do so. God, I pray that as we think about praying for the impact of the gospel for your glory, we'd start here. Lord, those in this room that don't know you, draw them to yourself now. Save them. Cause them to see you as beautiful, to love you more than anything, and to surrender their lives to you. And Lord, give us boldness, give us fervor, to be faithful in our sharing and to be faithful in prayer that we might have an impact on this city, not for our own glory, not so anybody would say, oh, the Christians of Vero Bible Fellowship are great. No, no, so that we would glorify you with our lives, that we would be able to say with Paul, uh, I don't account my life as my own or as precious to me. If only 
I may live and fulfill my ministry to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. We thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being with us here today, church. Um, if you need prayer, uh, we will have certain prayer partners and elders that will come to the front after, and you can come forward, and they would uh, love to, to pray with you. It's good to be together, and I hope you have a wonderful day in the Lord. All right.